1: I'm Walter Reeves the Georgia Gardner, and what my job this morning is to do is to help you be more successful and to keep you from doing work and to do the answers that I give to your questions, have them based on research, based on science, based on not weird stuff that people hear over the internet. I just last, uh, two weeks ago now, <sighs> had a long discussion with a fellow who was very, very, very convinced. That glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is absolutely killing everything in the world. It's the worst, most sinful thing in the whole. He doesn't want anybody to use it. Science simply doesn't support those conclusions. The internet has all sorts of groups talking about how glyphosate and Monsanto and killing everybody, non Hodgkin's lymphoma and things like that. But when you get down to the real research, by medical professionals, by researchers of the university who have no particular axe to grind, but who are doing the research on the weed killers, they don't find any evidence of cancer-causing or tumor-causing or birth defects or anything like that caused by glyphosate. Sometimes I think there has been some harm done by by the inactive ingredients that they put into glyphosate or into Roundup to make it stick to the leaves better and do things like that. The actual chemical of glyphosate I simply don't see the research If you find some peer reviewed Published research that says That glyphosate does do something Harmful in the environment Let me know, please tell me But don't tell me What your neighbor said Because I don't really care what your neighbor says I want something based on science Dale is in Jefferson, Georgia And joins us on Lonely Garden Hey Dale, you been attacked by something?
2: Yes, I'm being attacked by a Little chipmunk. I don't know how to get. I don't know
1: how to get rid of it. What do you mean by? What's he trying to do, Dale? get in my house. How? What happened? You open the door. He tries to run in, or what? No, I got uh, little cubby
2: holes with air vents in them. Yeah. He dug a hole in there, and I put some rat poison in there. He won't eat it. And he's crawling under, and he's going to get into the house. And I think yeah. he has a family under there.
1: Yeah. When you say the little hole, I did not quite understand where the holes were that he's digging, Dale. Give me more description of that.
2: Okay, I got I got the air vents, but they're underground. Mm-hmm. It has a cubby hole where okay. air goes in, got into it. my cross, cross place.
1: Got it. And so the chipmunk thing is digging down there around that.
2: Oh yeah, I see him come in and
1: out. <laughs> what, what about I, traps, rat traps, or something like that, Dale?
2: Okay, what do I put on the rat trap?
1: The you know and my normal bait, frankly, is peanut butter. And if you just don't see any evidence that they like peanut butter, the next one is to get a little pack of uh, cinnamon apple uh, oatmeal. You know, a little pack of oatmeal, you can put it in boiling water, make a cereal in the morning. Get a pack of that cinnamon apple. Seems to work great because it smells so good and put just enough water to make it sticky and stick that onto the trigger of your trap. And that has worked nicely on voles for me when I couldn't get them to eat the peanut butter. They would eat the, okay. the oatmeal on there. And All right. I got I to point out, Dale, something that I sometimes need to point out, and that is that some animals that I talk about controlling on the show are actually protected by law, chipmunks being one of them. So Ooh. in one sense, you are breaking the law. But hopefully, Dale is not your real name. And so nobody can identify you. Don't know that you live in Jefferson, Georgia here. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So, yeah. um, I just want to say that chipmunks are a protected species. You're not supposed to do anything mean, horrible, hit them with a stick, make them have low self esteem, do anything that causes a chipmunk to feel badly, including setting a rat trap out for them, baited with peanut butter or oatmeal. Uh, I will let you make your own decisions, Dale. It's up to you.
2: Oh, thank you so
1: much. All right, uh, Dale. Thanks for calling this morning. Uh, all right, bye. Four zero four eight seven two zero seven fifty is my number. I, I was not lying. I'm telling the truth. Chipmunks are protected. I don't think we're running into any shortage of chipmunks in the woods and the landscape around my house right now. Certainly a lot of them there, and certainly I have suffered due to their presence. And I have gone to a a choice based system of control. Let's put it that way. Uh, I have a number of uh, lethal traps or rat traps that I put. At first, I put them on the ground around my raised bed. And then, as they would get snapped overnight, but no chipmunks or anything would be caught, I wonder, what is what is eating the peanut butter off my traps? and snapping them and not getting caught. And I put my trail camera up next to the garden one day. It was a possum. Boy, he ran, ran, ran when that thing snapped him on the nose, but he was not getting caught in the trap. Okay, so now I put it up on the... Uh, rail of the raised bed, with the trap there and the tomato nearby, and my feeling is that the chipmunk has a choice. The chipmunk has a choice to eat the tomato or eat the peanut butter, and they can choose. And whatever they choose is fine with me. I'll deal with it. We know what happens. Four zero four eight seven two zero seven fifty. Let's see, Paul's in Dunwoody and comes on our show right now. Hey, Paul. Good morning. Hey, Paul. Yes. Good morning. Hey. I love your show. Oh, thank you. How can I help? Uh, Paul? I think
3: you're. I think you're very educated and very uh, knowledgeable about our state.
1: As soon as you think that, then I will say something dumb. Also, <laughs> don't ask me anything. I, where I, have I to was. Sound smart. I
3: was. I uh, was. I was calling about the blueberries down in Baxley oh, yeah. and Alma. Yeah. Can you can you tell us when they were first uh, brought to Georgia and how many how many dollars are grown in that area? Gosh.
1: Blueberries are one of the success stories of Georgia agriculture. It is an unbelievable amount of blueberries that come there. I think they're the highest-grossing agricultural product, if not the highest-grossing fruit, certainly, in Georgia right now. Millions and millions of dollars is the right answer. And the the, the blue, blueberries, as they grow, are two kinds. One is a rabbit-eye blueberry, which is actually a native blueberry back you know hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago rabbit eye blueberries grew in Georgia and about the size of a BB. They weren't very good to eat unless you got several, several hundred of them for your cereal in the morning. But as uh, breeders and farmers and others tried to breed them to make better fruit, and as university research started doing it, they developed rabbit eye blueberries. that are as big as your little finger and then some as big as your thumb. Huge blueberries. And then the farmers in South Georgia said, you know, it's going to be a real... Tough road to hoe to grow only corn every year Only soybeans every year Only uh, cows or or corn And so what we need to do is diversify What can grow in South Georgia that we know of And the University of Georgia said Hey, blueberries grow great in Alma Blueberries are fabulous in back So you need to go plant you some blueberries And one or two farmers did And they had such success that Five or ten others did And they had such success now you got hundreds of farmers down there Producing a ton of blueberries And making lots of money for them and for the state
3: can you uh can you tell us if they have a health clinic down there for the uh migrant labor?
1: I probably do. Why do you ask?
3: Well, um um it, it's a hard job and they're they're not paid very much right. and they need uh they need to know that other people in the state care about what they're doing because they're very important to the economy, and we need to make sure they're in good health.
1: Well, I agree with that, certainly, but that's not, not the scope of the show this morning on The Garden Show, Paul. But yeah, that's true. I think that migrant labors in, in many parts of the country are the backbone of agriculture. If you did not have the programs that allow them to come in legally, and then, as you know, sometimes occasionally they're hired illegally— if you did not have those laborers, we wouldn't have the fruits, the watermelons, the blueberries, the peaches and apples, sometimes that we enjoy, which are harvested by people who would rather do that than live where they used to live.
3: Well, uh, Vidalia has a clinic. It's a one-story clinic that's bilingual, and there's a clinic near Moultrie. Um, uh, they are um, they are they um, uh, there are over 400 clinics in the United States, mainly in Florida in North Carolina and California.
1: Well, that's a good thing, but again, Paul, this is outside the scope of a gardening show here, but I'm glad there are clinics for the workers down there, and certainly, when I was a kid, working on that little dinky farm that I grew up on in Fayette County, I wish there was a clinic for just Reeves kids, frankly, because it was hot, miserable work outside, hoeing, watering, weeding, feeding, fertilizing, doing all the things we had to do on our farm, I could have used a little clinic attention, I think, at the time. Mostly it was just under the shade tree and get a drink of water out of an uh, ice-cold bucket. And that was about it as far as clinics went in Fayette County, Georgia. George is in Tucker and joins us in Lawn and Garden. Hey, George, good morning.
4: Good morning, Walter. What's up, George? A few minutes ago you were talking about uh, protection of various species. Yeah. There is a, uh, a non-poisonous snake protection law. Do you, you know the number of that law? Or?
1: I don't know the number specifically, but you're absolutely correct. Any non-venomous snake in Georgia is protected.
3: Okay, but you don't know the uh, specific no, uh, the, code? Uh, or anything like that.
1: Venomous snakes are unprotected. In other words, you, can't, right. <laughs> you can kill them. I hope and you know many cases wish that people would not kill the venomous snakes because any snake, venomous or non-venomous, doesn't want to be around a human being or anything bigger than they are. Their little brain is the size of a pea, and that little brain, all it can understand is there's something near me. If it's bigger than me, it'll probably hurt me. Let me get the heck out of here. And so the snake leaves, venomous or non-venomous. They do not attack and chase you down the trail or anything like that. And so when folks see a a copperhead, for instance, is uh, sunning itself on a rock in a creek, and they think, well, i got to go out there and hit it with a stick or something to kill it and drive it away. There's no need to do that. Let the copperhead set himself on the rock, and he will go about his business. You go about your business. They're not going to come grab you and bite you on the side of the creek.
4: Okay. <clears throat> That's, that, 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 was, that was my question.
1: All right. That said, George, the the thing that a lot of people want to know is how, do you, how can you tell whether it's venomous or not venomous? How do we know whether it's a good one or a bad one, and we ought to avoid it? And I have several places on my website. If you just type in the word snake, and I've got pictures of the gray rat snake, very, very common, non venomous snake. They eat rats and mice and toads and don't do anything to people at all. But gray rat snake is very, very common. There's a brown, little brown snake about eight inches long called a decays snake or brown garden snake, some people call it. Very harmless. People, kids pick them up all the time. I see them in my neighborhood. Kids pick it up, look at it, put it back down again. Ringneck snakes are non-venomous, very common. Garter snakes, very common. A lot of snakes in Georgia are common, but non-venomous, certainly. Although, certainly, sometimes you do see copperheads. There have been a couple of sightings in my neighborhood and on a, on a walking path near my house. And fortunately, my neighbors are the kind that say, Le- leave him alone. Just you know, throw something and make him go off in the woods. Stomp your feet real hard and go off and he'll go and do his job eating other things that you don't want to have around you. But I'm a snake lover, a snake protector, and I I appreciate you pointing out that most of them at least are protected and venomous or not, but I wish you'd leave them alone anyway. Okay. Okay, thank you very much, Walter. Yeah, George, thanks for calling. Okay, bye-bye. I had a picture this past week, actually, was sent to me. Somebody wanted to know if it was a copperhead. And I said, here's how you know a copperhead. They're... Background color of the whole length of the body looks like chocolate milk. It's just that color light light uh, brown chocolate milk color and then the markings on the side look like Hershey Kisses. That's easy for me to remember. Hershey Kisses and chocolate milk, that is a Copperhead. That's how you know what it is. It's 718. We'll be back after this.
0: This is Scott Slade, host of Atlanta's Morning News, on News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We'll be covering breaking news, Kirk Mellish weather, and traffic red alerts through the weekend. And the Southeast's largest news team is here for you first thing Monday morning when you head back to work. News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. Now back to Walter Reeves for the lawn and garden advice you need.
1: A quick weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. Know, thunderstorms here and there. 40% chance of thunderstorms today. High 91, low of 74. Same tomorrow, high 90, low of 73. Your full weekend forecast because within 10 minutes with news 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We've got Bob in Buford who joins us on Lonely Garden. Hey, Bob, good morning.
5: Good morning, Walter. How are you? Brother
1: Bob, I'm doing fine. How can I help?
5: I'm going to try to refresh your memory. You remember I sent you some pictures of two apple trees I planted under teepees? Yes, sure. of soft- course. Yeah. yeah, okay. Oh, well, no. I have, those trees are still living. Um, and what keep I'm trying the, to decide is. The, the
1: teepees were to keep the deer away, right, Bob?
5: Exactly, with chicken wire. Well, okay. I've modified them now so the teepees are gone, but it's still protected with a little uh, plastic fencing, I guess you'd call it.
1: Tell everybody um, why you wanted to protect the apple trees from the deer. Say again? Tell, tell everybody that's listening why you wanted to protect the apple trees.
5: Well, we're on about two acres up here by Lake Lanier, and we have a very, very established uh, group of deer that just I, we see them about every day. And uh, the first time, I planted these two gala apple trees, and they with the goal to eventually be a spaliade. And so they were out there for about a week before the deer decided to eat the tops out of them. Okay break branches out of them and everything, so I had to protect them. There was nice. no way they were going to survive otherwise, I don't think.
1: So you made this big TP kind of thing, put chicken wire around it. That protected them for a while. and Then, yeah. then what happens to <laughs> Well,
5: Well, uh, they're growing fine. I've got them protected. What I'm trying to decide to do, um, the the goal, like I said, is to try to espalier them, where you, you train them to a fence, or I mean, in this case it's going to be trained to a wire. Okay. Um, And they're growing in all different directions right now, which, of course, I'm going to have to eliminate some of those... Branches. I mean, I'm being generous, calling them a branch. It's yeah. only probably a foot and a half long, something like that. Um, but I'm trying to decide if I should cut them now and let them, you know, just grow as they will after I've after I've done the pruning, or if I should. They've never flowered and they've never fruited, right. um, so I have no blooms yet. They're still too young. But I'm in mean, the goal to get them to flower next spring. I'm trying to decide if I should cut them now or if I should let them grow and get as much energy out of the leaf from this summer into the stock to try to encourage flowering next year?
1: I would say now and I'll tell you why. Really? Yeah Uh, Summertime pruning on apple trees is more dwarfing or it does not encourage a lot of regrowth, a lot of re-sprouting around the the cuts that you make and it seems to me that at this point you want to make a pruning cut that will not result in a lot of new growth which would little less likely to have flowers on it, but you want to cut off the growth that's pointing in the wrong direction. You eventually want to want it in just two dimensions high and wide, but not three dimensions you know, out from the wire. And so a, a summertime cut is going to result in less new growth and the leaves that are on the rest of the tree will, to some extent, there'll be more leaves that'll pop out along the horizontal and vertical branches of the of the tree. They'll compensate for whatever you lose right now during the summertime, but you'll gain the fact that you won't have near the new growth that you might if you prune next uh, December, January, February. So unless it's just some huge half or three-quarters of the tree being pruned away now, I would, two or three limbs here or two or three limbs there, I don't think it's a problem removing them right now.
5: I guess I'll be doing some pruning later on this morning. It
1: won't be hard to do. You? you just have a couple on there to, to remove. How, oh, many of the trees, how tall are the trees now, Bob? <laughs>
5: the whole tree is no more than five feet tall. Yeah,
1: right. I, it's not going to exhaust you to prune those trees.
5: Oh, not at all. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to clip them. All right. Go for it. Thanks, Walter. I'll, I'll send you a progress report.
1: Bet, Thanks for calling. All Bye-bye. I, I like progress reports and pictures. They always make me happy. One of the things right now that my neighbors are waiting anxiously to happen is for the figs in our neighborhood to ripen. There's two or three people who have figs, and all of them have pretty nice crops of figs on them. They're about the size of a quarter, a little bit bigger than a quarter right now, so they're not nearly ripe. But give them just a little bit of rain like we had in the last couple of days and some warm days, sunshiny days— and those figs will start getting ripe sometimes toward the end of this month. And I think everybody in the neighborhood who enjoys figs is thinking, boy, mm, it's going to be good. We're going to have a lot of figs this year. The birds, of course, up in the trees said, oh, boy, it's going to be good. We're going to have a lot of figs this year. So we will see how the fig crop goes this year. It's one of the easiest fruiting plants to grow that we have in Georgia. Even blueberries take a little more care than a fig does. There's rarely anything that has to be done. To prune if you put them in the right place anyway, you don't put them right close to the house. But if you uh, put them in the right place with lots of sun, a little bit of water in the summertime, and a fig will produce pounds and buckets full of figs, sweet, juicy figs. You make fig preserves, you can make fig jam, you can do all sorts of things with figs. And they're easy to harvest. They don't require you climbing way up into a tree unless you have the big figs that you have to put a ladder on the side to prune. So there's lots of uh, advantages to having figs. I love having my figs in my neighborhood, and my neighbors are all looking forward to it as well. The 727 News Talk WSB. This is and Garden. My number is 404-872-0750. We'll be back after news. 404 is the number here. All I'm trying to do is help you be more successful in your landscape or in your garden or in homes or anything like that. Another insect that's sort of a trend of insect calls or insect questions and insect experiences that I've had this past week. had another friend who called and said they had box elder bugs on their house. And box elder bugs, in case you're not familiar with them, are about half an inch long, red and black, and they accumulate by the thousands on houses when the weather gets warm and they start reproducing. And they usually are reproducing underneath Japanese maples, box elder maples, um, other seed bearing trees. And the way you control them is two. Number one, you try to remove all the seed pods you can from the tree, all the seed pods on the ground underneath the tree. The box elder bugs don't bite, they don't do anything bad, they just feed on the seeds. It's just when you get a thousand of them on the walls of your house, sometimes crawling under the door, they're inside. That's when you begin to sort of worry about them. And on the house, you can wash them off if you want. You can spray insecticide if you feel badly about them, don't want them on there at all. But basically, for box elder bugs, we try to remove the seeds, get the feed source away from them, and uh, get the ground covers, any English ivy or Lyria up underneath the tree. mow it down pretty low so the predators can get to them as well and that's how you control box elder bugs. I was at a community garden yesterday afternoon, and I love going to community gardens because I see more problems and more diseases and more insects there than I see in some other places. I would see maybe other places. And one of the things I noticed was the great control they got of flea beetles on eggplant using diatomaceous earth. Now diatomaceous earth is an interesting organic insecticide. The way it works is back millions of years ago, there's a big ocean that covered the middle of the United States, and living in that ocean water were these tiny microscopic creatures called diatoms. And the diatoms, as they accumulate uh, minerals out of the water, they, call it, they have a little body form that's very, very sharp, like little shards of glass, really. And so over a million years, the diatoms fell out of the water into the bottom of these uh, oceans, And then finally, the oceans dried up, and you had a deposit of diatomaceous earth, okay, the places where the diatoms had fallen and accumulated. And so, folks would mine or have, and have for many years mined this diatomaceous earth and found that if you spread it onto places where insects went, the insects would cut themselves, that the sharp little shards of diatoms would cut the legs and underbodies and dry out as well. They're very, they absorb oil very nicely. And so, when an insect crawls across a uh, diatomaceous earth coated surface, it cuts their feet, their bottoms, and it also causes their inside juices to, to ooze out, and the diatomaceous earth dries them out. So it's a pretty good organic insecticide. The only thing, the only drawback to it is if it gets wet. If it gets wet, it washes off the plant. And if it gets wet, it sort of clots up and doesn't do a very good job hurting the insect. But nonetheless, on these eggplants that I saw as the community garden, they had spread a little dusting of diatomaceous earth on top of the leaves. Anyone who's grown eggplant knows that the biggest insect pest of eggplants is flea beetles. Flea beetles are little bitty holes in the leaves, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little bitty holes, little pits really, on the leaves of the eggplant in the garden. And uh, they can disfigure and sort of reduce the yield on, ye- on eggplants as well. But whoever this gardener was in this particular plot had covered the leaves of his eggplant with diatomaceous earth. There was not a pit to be seen. And two or three plots away in this garden, there was an eggplant that did not have any diatomaceous earth on it, and it was covered in pits from flea beetles. Tells me what works and what doesn't work. It works very nicely, again, if you're religious about keeping the dust on the leaves. When I was in Cuba several years ago, I noticed the guy who was uh, walking through the fields there that had a big eggplant field in Cuba, and he was spraying something on the eggplant leaves, and I went over just to sort of see what he was growing and what the plants looked, and I noticed on them that there was not a single flea beetle pit on any of the leaves of the eggplants, and I was wondering, what is the guy spraying? What is he doing here? And I asked our guy what was going on, and he said, what we do is we go to the nearby cigar factory, and we take the stems and leaves of tobacco plants that have been uh, discarded and put them in a bucket of water and soak them overnight. And overnight, the nicotine sulfate that's in the leaves and stems of the tobacco plant is, is dissolved into the water. And then this guy here takes the water out of the bucket, strains it, puts it in a sprayer, and then sprays the leaves of the eggplants. And nicotine sulfate, as any old time farmer will tell you, is just a, <laughs> it is a fabulous insecticide. It uh, kills insects instantly, pretty much and disappears within just a day or so, and so if used correctly, can be used as an organic insecticide, but it is also extremely dangerous for humans, and so there were so many people who would be sick and killed or made ill from touching and messing with the nicotine sulfate that was taken off the market 20, 25 years ago now. But there in Cuba, they don't have those rules, and they were controlling those flea beetles on the eggplants perfectly just by soaking tobacco in a bucket of water and using that extract as the insecticide to, to protect their plants there. Interesting thing, Black Leaf 40, for some of you old-timers out there who know or remember a product called Black Leaf 40, that was nicotine sulfate, and that was the stuff that was taken off the market because so many people got ill from having having used that. My brother, as a matter of fact, was uh, he wasn't harmed, but he could have been harmed because my dad was careless and he had been spraying black leaf forty on some of the vegetables we had in our garden. And my brother was only two, probably three years old. And my dad wanted to empty his sprayer. He didn't have two sprayers. We were too poor to have two sprayers. So he wanted to empty the sprayer that had the had the insecticide in it, and uh, put it with something else that he wanted to spray somewhere else. And so he poured the content of his sprayer into, <sighs> Daddy, what were you thinking? Into a little plastic bucket, little plastic thing that he set beside the uh, chicken house, and then went about his business spraying other things in the garden. And my little two- or three-year-old brother went up there and thought it'd be fun to play in that water, in that bucket of water that was next to the chicken house. And when my father saw him doing that, he, of course, ran up to him and washed his hands off and took it to my mother, and they both you know, sort of fussed at each other for having exposed my My brother to this insecticide It's one of the things about insecticides You treat it with respect Many of them are dangerous You don't want to get in touch with them And particularly some of the old ones That could be very toxic if you got in touch with them Fortunately, again, my brother was not harmed by this whole thing But do be careful with insecticides One of the most common Pictures that I've gotten this year Has been not insecticide But herbicide damage That was caused by insecticide spraying that's what I said, herbicide damage caused by insecticide spraying and how did that happen it happened because folks don't have two sprayers I'm sure you have enough money to buy two sprayers these days not like the reasons back a long time ago but folks who have a single sprayer and use it for both spraying insecticide and spraying herbicides you know, weed killers and things can run into severe problems real quickly if they have a tomato plant that gets sprayed with a Sprayer that's not been completely cleaned Of Roundup or The uh, broadleaf weed killers that have 2,4-D and dicamba in them And one of the most interesting pictures that I get Commonly during the summertime Is a tomato plant That the top of it is wound around Strappy looking, just has a very Distorted, gnarled look to the Top of the tomato plant That's so characteristic Of the 2,4-D dicamba Weed killers, the ones that are in the Bonite and weed be gone and things like that is a it is the tomato plant is so sensitive so sensitive to these things just spraying oh, a yard or two away and on a windy day you can get some of the spray from the weed killer that goes over to your tomatoes and cause the top of the plant to strap around and again look very gnarly and very weird looking that is what the d- distinct characteristic of weed killer looks like now Roundup is different Roundup has a little bit different characteristic of tomato plants again very sensitive to herbicides and so the center of a tomato leaf, right where it connects to the stem of the plant, to the vine of the plant, will turn a very bright yellow. If you see a tomato plant at the center of the leaf, right where the leaf connects to the stem, it's turned a huge bright yellow, just as yellow as the sun. That is the damage caused by Roundup. Again, from a sprayer that hasn't been cleaned correctly, hasn't been cleaned completely, has a little bit of herbicide left in it when you go to fill it up with insecticide and that's when you run into problems. I had a guy who sent me a picture of his uh, what was a hydrangeas this this week, and all the leaves on it, the characteristic of Roundup damage on hydrangeas is very tiny leaves, leaves that are barely half an inch long. And normally a hydrangea leaf you know is supposed to be an inches long, four inches wide. But these were real tiny, little balls of tiny leaves along with the stem. And I pointed out to him that looked just like Roundup damage. You can sort of hear him put his face to his forehead and say, Oh yeah, oh yeah, I should have cleaned that sprayer a little bit better this time. Bill's out in Peachtree City, in Georgia, Lawn and Garden. Hey Bill, good morning. Hey Walter. Hey man, what's up? Uh,
0: when I moved down here, the house that I bought, I inherited a crepe myrtle that's about twenty four inches away from the house. Ooh. And when it blossoms, I mean it just it really crushes into the house. Oh yeah. And I was wondering what the best way to trim it back if I can uh, and when to do it.
1: How, how tall does it get maximum when you allow it to grow? How tall does it get?
0: Uh, it's above roof level right now, but part of it grows up into the eave.
1: Uh, Bill, you ought to take it out is you could conceivably trim it every year, and then every year it becomes you know, chore a chore aid that you have to do. Some years you get around to it, some years you don't. You have a lot of springy growth that comes from that severe pruning that, that beats on the house when the winds and the rains come. I think you'd be better off five years from now you'll look back and say, I am so glad I took that crepe myrtle out of here. It's just been such a pain in the rear to try to prune it every year. And you can replace it with crepe myrtles that don't get that big. And if you like the color and you like the, the form of a crepe myrtle, sure, there's plenty of crepe myrtle varieties that get much smaller than 20 feet high. So I would advise you in the interest of just sort of what I see is going to happen is go ahead and bite the bullet, take the pill and cut it down, pull it out now and plant another one or something else in its place.
4: Well,
0: I figure that might be one of the options and. uh
1: how, how close to the house did you say it was? Twenty, twenty-five? Twenty-four
0: inches. inches. The trunk is twenty-four inches away. Oh.
1: No. Yeah, take it out, Bill.
4: Okay.
0: All, all right. right.
1: I, I mean, I, I don't like telling people to do something. They'd rather not do if at all possible, but it's just going to be so much more trouble than it's worth to leave it there.
0: I Yeah, I'll start all over again.
1: Yeah, right. But again, you can get good-sized crepe myrtles. they got sales at Pike, of course, uh, all the time, crepe myrtles that are four and five feet tall, $50 maybe, and you can plant them now. No reason why not to plant them now. Water very nicely, and you should have a good-looking plant. It'll bloom next year, and you'll be thankful that you took my advice.
0: Well, I appreciate it very much, Walter. All right.
1: Thanks for calling, Bill.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Speaking of crepe myrtles, I need my listeners to do some scouting for me. There's a particular insect that has been just ravaging crepe myrtles in Texas and Louisiana. Some in Mississippi, and as soon as it gets to Mississippi, Alabama, what's the next state in line? You guess it, Georgia. The insect is called the crepe myrtle scale. Wow, isn't it a destructive insect? It is a, one of those scale insects that doesn't move very much, just latches onto the stem of the plant. It's white, and you can have a population of thousands on one crepe myrtle plant, and every one of them is sucking sap out of the plant, weakens the crepe myrtle, of course. But when they suck the sap, they don't digest all of it. It comes out the other end, this honeydew, the sticky sort of sappy stuff that falls out of the tree. It coats everything underneath, cars, leaves, trunk, everything, which then turns black because mold gets onto it. It starts turning black from the mold, and it just makes a horrible mess. And we haven't yet had it in Georgia. Thank goodness for that, because if and when crape myrtle seals gets here, We'll have a real problem in controlling it. It's really hard to control. Scales are not the easiest plant or easiest insect in the world to control. So if we ever get crepe myrtle scale, we're going to have a real problem on our hands. So if you see a crepe myrtle that has white little scabs, little bumps all up and down the stems, and particularly if you see that black stuff coming down out of the um, out of the tree, coating the leaves and everything underneath. Tell me about it. I need to hear more. If there's crepe myrtle scale in Georgia, we need to control it and try to manage it as soon as we possibly can. It's 748. We'll be back after this. This
0: is Scott Slade from Atlanta's Morning News on WSB. Our 24-hour news center delivers updates all weekend. Depend on it. We'll be here Monday morning, 430 till 9, for breaking news and traffic and weather every six minutes. News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. Now back to the Lawn and Garden Show with Walter Reeves.
1: This morning, a theme of the 19, early 60s. I'm thinking here, mid-60s maybe. Louie Louie, Willy Bully, Hang On Sloopy, and a quick weather forecast brought to you by Finley Roofing. we hitting this Thunderstorms today, high of 91, low of 74. Same tomorrow, high of 90, low of 73. Warm in the afternoon, hitting this thunderstorm. we'll see what comes to your house. The full weekend forecast comes up in 10 minutes on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB denny is out in auburn and joins us on lawn and garden let's get my cursor over here hey denny good morning
2: good morning sir hey
1: how can i help denny
2: uh, well
4: um i just moved into a new place and they have uh three little ponds in there and um we have a chorus of frogs at night <laughs> great um yeah uh they're beautiful uh until i have to clean them so huh. i'm wondering if there is a plant or an animal that can help me with that process
1: so how, when you say small pond, are you talking ten feet across, like, hundred feet across, or how big is this pond? Oh, like
4: three feet, you know. I mean, we're talking like the little uh, accent pond, you know, ponds, yeah, little, little small
1: water feature kind yeah. of kind of thing. Yeah, water okay. features. And you have absolutely. to clean them because of why?
4: Algae and and uh, tannic water and just, oh. uh, you know leaves and stuff.
1: If you have algae in water, most often yeah. the reason for it to be. A, a dominant thing where it turns all green and slimy in the water is because of nutrients. And the nutrient that is usually limiting on the uh, uh, on the plants, on the algae, is nitrogen. Frogs, as you probably know, poop. And so when you yeah. have frogs yeah. and sometimes fish in ponds, if you have too many frogs or a lot of frogs and a lot of fish, their, their manure, their uh, feces, accumulates in the water and the algae being a plant thinks oh this is great got nitrogen we'll grow just like your vegetable in your front lawn grows if you put nitrogen yes. on it the grass grows if you put nitrogen in your algae the algae grows so yes. one way of controlling algae is to limit the amount of nitrogen in the soil you don't want to kill the frogs and get rid of them no we're not going to do that but put more plants if you can around the edges of your little water feature there the, could be something as simple as water lettuce water lilies uh, arrowhead, uh, sedges, uh, what else are some other water plants you put out there? You can go to any nursery and they usually will have a couple of tubs of water plants there. But if you put plants in there that are not um, algae, but are still going to absorb nitrogen out of the water, then the algae mm-hmm. tends to go disappear just because it doesn't have enough nitrogen to thrive, as the plants do. Cool. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, you can some of the plants like water lettuce and water lilies you can pull out because they won't survive wintertime. They just replenish them in the next spring when they start seeing them as the nurseries again, put two or three plants in. And pretty quickly you'll see that water lettuce and water hyacinths both reproduce really quickly in water features. They'll cover the surface and you won't have to worry about the algae anymore. But it covers a feature. Okay. Yeah, cool. it. it's real pretty. Some of them have flowers on them. It's really enjoyable to have them out there. And again, the the frogs. I love hearing frogs at night, and oh, uh, you get to hear those in their little ponds out there. And if yeah, you want to dig a big wonderful. one sometimes, it's sometimes fun to get a big one, put some fish in there, and get to watch them as well. Oh,
2: that's great. Well, thank you very much. I All appreciate right. that. Uh, thank you.
1: It's great talking to you, Danny. Thanks for calling. Four zero four eight seven two zero seven fifty gets you in to take Denny's place. We just had another caller. I'll put him on the line. I think we've got time to it right now. Jeremiah in Atlanta, join us the lawn and garden. Jeremiah, good morning.
4: Hey, good morning, sir. Hey. Uh, yeah, two, two parts here. I've got about 100, 150, 200 feet of road frontage um, on, on my on my yard beside me. It's just an open field. And we were thinking to create sort of a barrier. Uh, and sort of a hedge of forsythia. Okay, you know that beautiful yellow, yellow flower kind of shirt. bush. Yeah, and but uh, you know I got like 150 feet of this stuff. We're also thinking about lining. I mean, I may need 200 feet of this stuff. Yeah. And how do I do that affordably? And how long is it going to take for it's you know actually you know if I go out and buy a little twig and stick it in the ground, am I, am I talking five years before I've got a bush?
1: No. If you yeah. if you want to take cuttings from forsythia. If you knew somebody who had a big forsythia bush, you could take 50 easily cuttings from the forsythia, probably get 40 of them to root and be ready to plant in the fall or maybe next spring. So conceivably, it would be the cost of either one plant you buy from a nursery or a plant you borrow from a neighbor and just prune it real good and get all the cuttings from it and germinate or propagate them.
4: Go ahead and do that now? I think During you can. This growth? Yeah, you can do that now.
1: Yeah. Um you might I don't have a lot of time right now, but you can go on my website and if you just type the word propagate or propagate shrubs, maybe in the search line there are two or three pages of pictures where people have sent me their method of propagating azaleas their method of propagating roses, their method of propagating this and that. And uh from one or two of those you can see the technique of doing it. It's really simple. You make a six or well, seven Well, Yeah, ahead. I didn't
4: know you could do that. I didn't know you could do that in the middle of the growth season I yeah. thought you had to do that when it was going
1: dormant No, no, it actually does better during the growth season When you have some leaves on it And the leaves are the what powers of roots Being made at the bottom of the cutting And so you need some huh. leaves on them So that's why now, June, July Great time to do the forsythia
4: Okay, other quick question About azaleas You know, if you're know, like a lot of bushes that you don't want Or yeah. an old holly, you cut it down And it starts branching and growing oh, back Oh yeah, sure is my azalea going to do the same thing? We were doing some yard work, and my son went a little—he went a little—he went a little haywire with the chainsaw and cut yeah. down the azalea.
1: <laughs> Very likely, Jeremiah. No matter what he did, it's probably going to come back. Azaleas, if they're healthy, if you cut them back hard, they still sprout back up again. So I would say the likelihood is about ninety percent they'll re-sprout no matter what your son did to them. It's seven fifty-eight News Talk WSB. We'll be back to more lawn and garden after news.